Look Forward series with Andrea Catherwood. Hello, I'm Andrea Catherwood and welcome to the Rathbones Look Forward series. We're speaking to some of the great thinkers, journalists and writers of our time, focusing on the future of our changing world. My guest today is theoretical physicist and acclaimed novelist Alan Lightman. His unique career has found imaginative ways to bridge the two cultures of science and humanities. His latest book, Searching for Stars on an Island in Maine, explores our spiritual quest for meaning in the age of science. We're talking about the future of faith. Alan, you're a theoretical physicist. Just explain to us a little bit what that means. What is it that you're preoccupied with on a daily basis in that role? Well, a physicist in general studies the most fundamental aspects of of nature. What are the, the basic forces of nature like gravity and, and what are the fundamental particles of nature and how are they related? And a theoretical physicist, instead of doing experiments, weighing things and measuring things, works with pencil and paper and, and does calculations and, and makes predictions about what should happen under certain conditions. So that's what a theoretical physicist is. And was this something that you've been excited about since childhood? You know, the idea of, of all the components that make up the world we live in? Yes, I was interested in the physical world and in science since childhood. I didn't know what a theoretical physicist was. <laughs> but I'm I, not surprised. But I like to do experiments. I built a remote control device where you could turn on the lights in any room in the house from any other room of the house, that kind of thing. How old were you? Uh, probably about... 10 or 12. Wow, that's impressive. <laughs> uh, but I, I didn't know what a theoretical physicist was. I just knew that I liked to engage with the physical world. Now, I, I believe that you consider that this part of science, theoretical physics, is sort of closest to philosophy and religion. Yes. Explain that to us, because I think very often we think that science and religion are diametrically opposed. Mm -hmm. Well, some of the, the problems that physics explorers being concerned with the fundamental nature of the universe involve issues that were once considered to, to lie in the domain of philosophy and religion. For example, uh, the origin of the universe. Two or three hundred years ago, nobody, including scientists at the time, would have thought that we would be able to actually understand the origin of the universe or whether it had an origin at all. And of course, every religion throughout human history has had a, an origin story or a myth of the origin, or you might have a, a religion like Buddhism in which there was no origin, but science in the 1920s actually discovered experimental evidence that the universe had an origin and actually how long ago that was. So science now knows something about the origin of the universe. If you ask the question, what came before the origin, then you get into philosophy and theology, and that's where physics, religion, and philosophy meet. So as a scientist, obviously, you do believe in a world that is made out of material and is governed by fundamental forces and laws. And yet in your book, you talk about an experience that you had on your boat in Maine. Just tell us about that experience, if you will. Well, I, my wife and I, uh, my wife is a painter, and we spent our summers on a little island in Maine, and it's a small island, and 
there are no roads or bridges. So, so consequently, the six families who live on the island uh, each have their own boat. And I was coming back to the island in my boat one night very late after midnight. It was a very dark night, and the sky was littered with stars. And I turned off the lights of the boat, and then I turned off the engine, got very quiet, and I lay down in the boat and looked up at the sky. And after a few minutes, I felt that I had dissolved into that sky. I felt like I was falling into infinity. The boat disappeared, my body disappeared, and I felt like I was connected to something much larger than myself. That was the the feeling. And I'm sure that I would guess that many people have had similar experiences where you feel connected to something larger than self. It might be in, in the arts, it might be in religion. A piece of music, perhaps. That piece you of music, to, mm. painting, literature. And do you feel that that experience cannot be understood by science as we know it today? Yes, I do. Um, I think you could have connected every one of my 100 billion neurons to a vast computer and and gotten the electrical signals from every single one of them that night that I was in the boat looking up and you would not have remotely understood the experience that I had. So it's interesting, you, you've you gone through this extremely unscientific experience and one that you yourself acknowledge cannot be understood by science mm-hmm. as we know it, and yet you have remained a scientist and committed to the material world. Do you see a, a contradiction there? Is it, is it difficult for you? I, I don't see a contradiction. I think that you can be a scientist and still be a spiritual person. And by spirituality, I mean the sense of being connected to something larger than yourself. That may or may not involve a feeling of being connected to God. It may or may not involve a a belief in God. But it's an experience that is part of the current of of feeling and response to the world that has, has gone through the human condition for thousands of years. As, as you said, you, you can hear it in music, you can hear it in Beethoven's Eroica, you can see it in the cave paintings in Lascaux and Lazy Zay in France. It's, it's all part of the same thing. You might call it the transcendent experience. That transcendent experience takes time and and peace and yes. being in a situation mm-hmm. perhaps where you're not surrounded by mm-hmm. others, perhaps. Certainly one where you're not connected to your smartphone. Yes. Um, do you think that people have always had those experiences and do you think they are still having them today? I think that we've always had those experiences, yes, um, and we can see indications of them going back, as I said, to the cave paintings of Cro-Magnon. But I think that the world that we live in today, the, the very fast-paced world, which is driven partly by the Internet, that we, we, we don't give ourselves as much time to have those experiences. When, when you're rushing from A to B all the time and taking your kids to a dentist appointment and you're always rushing around looking at your smartphone every three minutes or taking the smartphone with you when you go for a walk in the woods so you can keep up with your office or riding on the train, I think there's less time to open yourself up to just being in the world. How does your idea of this transcendent experience 
fit in with God and organised religions as we know them. They Sometimes they feel like quite different things. Yes, I think they can be different things. And, and w- when I talk about the transcendent experience, I'm talking about a very personal, immediate feeling. I'm not talking about organised religion or religious institutions. I, I think that's something different. Organised religion has done both good and evil in the world, and so has science done both good and evil in the world. So the organized religion and science, I don't think that they have values themselves. They're, they're how we human beings use them. But the transcendent experience is, is, a, is a very personal connection that I'm talking about. I'm not talking about organized religion. The idea of a transcendent experience may well be something that people who haven't experienced it think they would like to. Is it something mm. that you can seek? Is there a way of actually experiencing this? I and mean, presumably it's not something that you can, you can't order it. You can order it, but I think that you can live a life where you create spaces where it can happen. You know, you can take a quiet walk in the woods. It's, it's an openness to the world. There's a concept in Hinduism called darshan. It means an openness to the sublime and, and a willingness to acknowledge the sublime. And the sublime may or may not involve a belief in God, but it's, it's somehow it's some, something larger than yourself that you feel a connection to. I'm interested in, as a scientist, do you, you not want to find out what that is? Because I sense that, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, there's, there's two ways of looking at it. Either this could be something, you know, this, this amazing sublime moment is something that's coming from within that you're connected to the rest of Uh the universe, um, in which case perhaps there isn't anything else out there. This is all, this energy is coming from us. Or perhaps it's coming from, I don't know, a greater being, a presence, something else. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I wonder which one of those you feel closest to. uh, And indeed, if it's something else, Mm -hmm. does science not want to find Mm -hmm. out what that Mm -hmm. is? My personal view is that it's coming from within. But I think that science cannot prove or disprove the existence of something out there. And let's just use the word God for whatever that is out there. God, as understood by most religions, lies outside of the physical universe. So therefore, science, which is restricted to the physical universe, cannot prove or disprove the existence of God. And and likewise, religion cannot prove or disprove the existence of God. So it may or may not be something out there. I don't know, and I can't prove it. I don't think anyone can prove it either way. My personal view, if you ask me, is that it's coming from within. Which means that we're very powerful creatures, maybe more so than we know. Well, I, I, I think we are. And I think those 100 billion neurons that I was mentioning earlier are capable of a great deal. That, that even though I believe the brain is all material, and there's just material stuff there and nothing more. I do think those 100 billion neurons are capable of imagination and exploration and creativity and connection. And speaking of connection, even if the, the world, the universe, at least the world that we know is all material, all atoms and molecules, there's a very literal sense in which we are connected to the stars. That feeling that I was connected to the stars That is, that the atoms of our body actually were produced in stars. 
if I labeled every one of the atoms in my body with my social security number so that I could follow it through time, if I could go backwards in time, I would find that those atoms were once in the oceans and in plants and the air. And if I go back even further in time and tracked each one of those atoms, it would end up in a star somewhere. All of the atoms in our bodies, except for hydrogen, the lightest element, were made in stars, literally. So literally, I am connected to the stars, literally. Sorry, that to me is just mind-blowing because I I assume that we were created, that we grew. And even as I say that out loud, I feel quite stupid because obviously individual atoms can't be destroyed. But how? just try and explain to me as somebody who just can't quite get my head around that, how we're connected to the stars, okay. where those atoms came from and how they're in yes. our bodies. I'll, I'll give you the story that, that scientists believe. Okay. And, and it sounds like, you know, a bedtime story, but this is really what scientists believe. Um, and there's a lot of evidence for it. All of the atoms in the world, and, and you can start off with hydrogen, and the next heaviest element is helium, which has two protons, and then carbon, which has eight. All of the atoms except for hydrogen, which has only one particle at the center, we believe were made by nuclear reactions at the center of stars, where you fuse two hydrogen atoms together to make deuterium, and you fuse two of those together to make helium, and on and on. At a certain point, massive stars, they explode, and they spew their atoms out into space. So all of the elements like helium, carbon, oxygen, that our bodies are made of, There were atoms that were streaming through space after the explosion of a star or or many stars. They traveled through space for millions of years, and then some of those atoms began condensing to form solar systems and planets. And initially, all of those atoms went into the material of the Earth, the soil, the oceans. This is long before we had even bacteria. And then life forms started forming, starting with bacteria, which is one of the oldest life forms on Earth, then other creatures, and then eventually we got to human beings. All of that material that we're made out of, of our bodies, having spent, you know, millions of years in the oceans and the air, eventually got into the sperm and the egg that made you, and then in the food that you ate that's part of your body. Mm -hmm. All of that started with these atoms that were spewed into space by an exploding star. The individual atoms. Wow, you explained that really, really well. And um, it's a fantastic bedtime story and, and quite extraordinary. I'd like to move on now to talk to you about the word faith. And how have you come to understand what it means? What does it mean to you? Well, to me, faith means belief in something that you can't prove. And there are many different kinds of faith. Even scientists believe in some things that we can't prove. So faith isn't just about religion and God. It can be something that science has to, scientists have to actually have faith. Explain to me a little bit about what scientists have faith in that they can't prove. Well, the fundamental belief of science, and you could call it a doctrine, Mm -hmm. is that the universe is lawful, that it obeys laws, that there's... There's nothing that happens in the physical universe that is not quantifiable and reducible to a law like Newton's law of gravity. And we can't prove that doctrine because no matter 
what wonderful theories we have, like Newton's law of gravity. We don't know for sure that, there, that tomorrow there might not be an experiment or phenomena that violates that law. But, but all working scientists, and this starts, I remember when I was a graduate student in physics, that it was just this idea of that the universe is lawful was just, uh, it was never even stated explicitly. It was just in the air we breathe, it came into every pore of our bodies as graduate students that the universe is a lawful place. You, you can't do science if you don't believe that. I was interested to read in your book, actually, that about 25% of scientists uh, at elite American universities do believe in the existence of God and they don't consider that science is the only framework for Mm -hmm. explaining the world. Um, And about a fifth of those believe in an intervening God. How how do you think that they reconcile the existence of an intervening God with the scientific thought? That's that's slightly different, isn't it? Yes, that is different. Uh, A non-intervening God is is completely compatible with science, as in deism and and transcendentalism and religions. And in my opinion, an intervening God who performs miracles is, is incompatible with science. And I've talked to some of those 5% of scientists who, who believe in an intervening God and, and asked them, how do they reconcile this? And, and, and some of them are, are respectable people. Um, and the dif- difference is that this is a God that you, you can pray to and ask for him or her to do something and they will actually do it, that they will or create a flood or, cre- you know, is, is, that the, is that the idea that... It, well, that's, the not, that's not have? necessarily what an intervening God means. So maybe uh, we have to go back it's and not necessarily It's not necessarily a personal God that you can pray to. Okay. Uh, but it, it's, it's, it's an intelligent being which from time to time at, at their choosing can intervene in the physical world and perform a miracle, like make this table start floating upward. That would be an intervening God. It may or may not be a personal God that you can pray to. But the scientists that I've talked to who believe in an intervening God, the way that they justify and reconcile this belief with their work as scientists is they say, science describes the way that the world works most of the time. But occasionally there are violations of that, such as in the resurrection of Christ, where God intervenes and, and performs a miracle. And that's the, the statement that this 5% of scientists make. And that's something that you don't think can be supported I, by science? I, 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 do not, mm-hmm. I do not share that belief, and I think that that belief is, is strictly incompatible with science. But as I say... The scientists who have that belief, some of them, you know, I mean, the, the ones that I know personally are, are, are very uh, respectable, rational, sane people. They just have this, these two juxtaposing worldviews in their head that I find incompatible. So when you you talk to scientists about their the transcendent experiences, yes. are they viewed suspiciously by the scientific community? I mean, science tends to eliminate the personal mm. from the, mm. the process of acquiring right. knowledge. Well, I, I, I think that, that all of the transcendent experiences, as I have described it and as I understand it, is, is not analyzable by science. I think that, that most scientists I know accept it 
most scientists are broad-minded people, and they, they know that there's more to the world than just what can be reduced to zeros and ones, you know, love affairs, for, for example. Uh, so uh, I think that, that most scientists would, would, would acknowledge the transcendent experience. Now, I know that you've been frustrated with um, the sort of anti-religion mm-hmm. stance of neo-atheists, as they're called, uh, Richard Dawkins, I'm thinking of it, and Sam Harris and others. What is it that makes you uncomfortable about their stance? Well, what makes me un- uncomfortable about the stance of, of the neo-atheists, that, as they've been called, and these are scientists and philosophers who, who use scientific arguments to cast doubt on the existence of God, it's not their arguments uh, that, that, for example, that show that the argument by intelligent design can be explained by science without needing to invoke God. It's not those arguments that, that, that make me uncomfortable. It's the dismissing, dis- dismissing of people of faith, the, uh, the labeling of, uh, well, uh, Richard Dawkins, uh, since you mentioned him first, um, has called all people of faith non-thinkers, and he's called religion nonsense. And that I find dismissive, condescending, and offensive. I think that that represents a kind of fundamentalism uh, that is equal to all other kinds of, of fundamentalism, including religious fundamentalism. Uh, Even though you see that uh, you think scientifically an intervening God cannot be justified in the laws of science. That, that, that's right. But I feel that, that um, people of faith, some who believe in intervening God and some who do not, such as uh, the, uh, the deist, I believe that they deserve my respect. Uh, they're intelligent people. Uh, they're, uh, you can't label them as non-thinkers. I mean, you know, you can't label Isaac Newton a non-thinker. You can't label Abraham Lincoln a non-thinker. You can't label Nelson Mandela or, or Mahatma Gandhi a non-thinker. It's just that it's a different way of, of being in the world. Do you think that neo-atheists are often driven by uh, concerns about the power of organised religion think, and the fanaticism and the bigotry and all those things that we, that I think all thinkers realise has been wrong with religion at times. And when yes. we look at the you know, the wars across the world today, yes. so many of them are fuelled by different differences in religion and religious fundamentalism. So you can see yes. that actually it's quite appealing to think that a world perhaps without organised religion might be a more peaceful one. Yes, I, I, I think that that is possibly what, what drives them. But I would also say that organized religion has accomplished a lot of good as a lot of evil. Um, organized religion has, has built schools, hospitals. Um, on the flip side, um, organized science has committed evils as well as good. You can just look at the Manhattan Project and, you know, the statement that, that Lawrence Oppenheimer made with the testing of the first atomic bomb that um, – now I am death, the destroyer of worlds. So I think that both organized religion and both organized science are, are capable of both good and bad, and it's how we use them. 
But I totally agree with you that I think that, that, that some of those uh, views of the neo-atheist are driven by that feeling. But I'm, I'm really talking myself not about organized religion, but about the personal feeling of being connected to something larger than ourselves. Many theological and, and philosophical questions have been answered by science over the centuries. For example, you know, is the universe eternal or was there some kind of beginning point in time? And yet religious belief has persisted. Mm-hmm. Um, so religion wasn't just about trying to explain the unexplainable. Yes. Is, that, is, is that what you believe? I do believe that. But a, again, uh, I would say that science, although it can explain many things that were once thought to lie in the field of theology cannot disprove the existence of God. If God is a being that exists outside of the physical universe, then you can't use arguments about the physical universe to disprove the existence of God. Uh, But neither can religion prove the existence of God. Do you envisage that science uh, will continue to answer these philosophical questions and actually we may find out more about the meaning of life or the existence of God? Mm. I, I know that some of these things are simply outside the realm mm. of, of science, but you know we would mm. never have believed um, a thousand years ago that we would know so much the, the, about it as we do today. Right. Good question. I don't think that science will ever be able to qu- answer the question why, even if we understand exactly what came before the Big Bang. So why are we here? Why are we here? One of the greatest philosophical questions of all is, why is there something rather than nothing? Science can't answer that question and never will be able to. Uh, And so there are some questions that I think will forever lie outside of the grasp of science. So there will always be a place for theology and philosophy, in my view. Do you think science will be able to answer the question about what happens to us after we die? Well, science has an explanation about what happens to us physically. The atoms, uh, the special arrangement of atoms in your brain that make consciousness uh, disintegrate or uh, become unarranged and, and spread in the oceans and the air and so on, Uh, If there is a a non-physical element of our being, which I personally don't believe, but if there is one, then science would never be able to to say anything about that sort of by definition. Science is restricted to the, the physical world. I'd like to go back and talk a little bit more about the the, uh, transcendent experiences Mm -hmm. that you talk about. Mm -hmm. So after your, that initial experience that you had in Maine, have you had more of these experiences? Well, I've had a lot of them, and that the one in Maine was not the first one. And and my guess is that, that, that many people have had these experiences. Um, and do you think it's about an individual being sort of open to the possibilities and the stimuli and things that are happening in our brain that we don't understand? Yeah, I think that openness is is a big part of it, and and also sort of having a a, a, a space of quiet around you. So, is this perhaps something that is likely to happen more often to? 
creative people or reflective people um, rather than perhaps people who work in a slightly mm -hmm. more reductive field or, mm -hmm. the, you know, the people whose brain works in a slightly different mm -hmm. way? Well, I think it, it, it may be more likely, but I, I don't want to discourage those other people from opening themselves up to these experiences. But it's, it's really just a part of, of being open to the world, of, of, of opening your mind, of being receptive to surprises. It's a part of giving yourself to the moment. And that sounds trite and easy to say, but I think it's getting harder and harder for us to give ourselves to the moment. In what way do you think that those moments are life-enhancing, those, those transcendental mm. moments are actually life-enhancing for us, that, you know, that we should seek them and enjoy them? The interesting thing is that when you lose yourself, as I did that night in the boat in Maine, and myself dissolved, that at the same time you're getting in touch with yourself. You're, fi you're, you're finding out more about who you are. And uh, I think part of our self-identity is formed by having quiet periods of reflection. When we think about um, our past experiences, the things that we did, some we are proud of, some things we regret, the relationships that we have, we think about our values and what's important to us. And that's part of solidifying our self-identity. Every day we're bombarded by thousands of external stimuli, you know, all these voices that are shouting in our heads every day. And feel, finding that the center of what's really you is somehow related to the transcendent experience of, 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 of grounding yourself. How much scientifically do we understand about the subconscious or the creative mind? Do you believe that that's an area that we can understand more? I think we can understand more about it, but I, I, I do feel that it, is, it remains quite mysterious. The, the unconscious mind is related to, to consciousness because before you know what the unconscious mind is, you have to know what the conscious mind is. And uh, I think we know very little about what consciousness is. Somehow, this hundred billion neurons and all the electrical activity and the chemicals they're exchanging, they produce a sense of I-ness, uh, a sense of ego. And that is a, a wonderful, amazing and, and baffling phenomenon. And I don't think that we're close to understanding it. And maybe we'll never understand it. I, I have a good friend named Robert Desimone, who's a, a, a neuroscientist and the head of a lab uh, in MIT, uh, my university. And I asked him once, will, will, will we understand consciousness, what it is, you know, biologically? And he said he thinks that as we understand more and more about the brain, that we will stop asking that question and we'll just ex say that this neuron does that and this neuron does that. And as he said, it's sort of like asking where in a car is its speed? <laughs> that once we know how a car works and you know you have the pistons that move and you have the spark plugs that, that fire and the gasoline is lit, you don't ask where in the car is the speed. 
You just say this happens and this happened, this happened. That's how a car works. And he thinks the question of consciousness will become like that. That as we know more and more about the brain, that we won't ask the question. I'd like to talk a little bit now about our reaction, perhaps, to scientific events. And to do that, I'd like to go back a little bit, because you talk in your book about Galileo making Mm -hmm. his first discoveries um, and the reaction to it. Could you tell me a little bit about that? He made the first telescope, and he was not the first person to, to understand how lenses work, but he was the first person to construct a device that you could point up instead of sideways in your neighbor's window. And he found sunspots, you know, dark spots on the sun, which had once thought to be, you know, a perfect heavenly body. He saw moons going around Jupiter, and it was once thought that the Earth was the only planet that had moons. And his findings, taken as a whole, sort of cast doubt on the belief that the Earth is the center of the universe, and also that all of the heavenly bodies like the stars and the planets are made out of some divine material because if the, if the sun could have spots on it, those are blemishes. So it's not a perfect substance. But these celestial bodies aren't perfection. They're not perfection, mm. right. When he first presented these findings, they were rejected by a mm. lot of people and extremely important people in organised religion. Right. Why do you think that was? Well, I think that they... That, that those findings threaten their their worldview, their understanding of the cosmos. And some of that understanding was based upon common sense. I mean, common sense tells us that the earth is the center of the universe because we don't feel the earth moving. You know, when you go outside, you're not knocked over by... Common sense tells us the earth's flat. Common sense tells over. us the earth's flat. <laughs> so some, some scientific findings are actually oppose common sense. But what the stars are made out of, that was purely theological and philosophical. And and so those beliefs were challenged by Galileo. And, but do you think that actually a little, uh, that kind of view is actually still prevalent today? I don't mean that the, that the earth is flat, but indeed that sometimes when science goes ahead of people's perceived view, for example, looking at climate change through the 80s and 90s, it's taken people quite a while to actually catch up with those scientific predictions that felt really out there right. to very many people and not everybody a half caught, a generation ago. Indeed. Yeah. Is, I mean, what does science do about that? Do they just have to slowly wait for people to catch up? Well, I think science needs good spokesmen and good spokeswomen uh, both who are scientists themselves and, and journalists like yourself who can explain these findings to the public. And you have to do it over and over again. And sometimes you're, you're battling the forces of capitalism, as is happening with climate change and happened in the 1960s and 70s with smoking, because there was so much money in smoking. And it took decades to convince the public that smoking really is harmful to your health because there was a huge amount of money in the tobacco lobby and so on. Uh, I think scientists and also journalists who know the difference between real news and fake news can keep articulating the situation. And eventually, if we're all patient, I I think that the public will understand the, the real issues. When Newton's law of gravity proved uh, to be uh, inconsistent with the orbit of Mercury, it was replaced in in 1915 by Einstein's law of gravity. 
And you actually talk about how Einstein's theory could also be replaced by yes. a more accurate theory. Yes. So I'm interested in this idea um, that all laws of nature discovered by scientists are, are considered provisional. Yes. Is, is that really the case? That is the case, um, that, that we consider all of the theories that we have as a, approximations to deeper theories and deeper laws. And uh, that leads to the interesting question, is there a final theory, a final law, that does not need any revision, that is, is perfect? And, and scientists are actually split on that, whether there is a final law. There's a, a Nobel Prize winning physicist named Steven Weinberg, an American, who actually wrote a whole book called The Final Theory, or Dreams of a Final Theory in which he clearly states that he thinks there is a final theory. The, the great irony is that even if we were in the possession of a, of a final theory, the ultimate truth, unrevisable, we wouldn't know it. Exactly. We'd have to keep checking we that wouldn't it really know it. was the unrevisable truth. We wouldn't truth. know it because we would, could never be sure that mm. tomorrow that mm. there might be an experiment mm. that would contradict that theory. Do you have any sense of which fields, in which fields the next scientific breakthrough might come? I mean, where are mm. the, the laws at the moment that, that scientists are working on and thinking, gosh, we really might be able to either disprove this or take it to mm. the next level? Well, there, there, there are a number of things in fundamental physics which we would like to know and don't yet. We don't have a, a theory of gravity that incorporates quantum physics. Even Einstein's theory does not incorporate quantum physics. So we know that will need revision. But I think some of the most interesting and exciting breakthroughs in science will come in the merging of biology with technology and physics and nanotechnology. I think that you know we're not far from the time where we will have computer chips in our brains that will connect us directly to the internet so you, you can learn a language overnight. Do, do you really think that's possible? I really think it's possible. And I think that we will have uh, tiny robots, you know, molecular-sized robots that can be injected into the, in the bloodstream and can go and deliver drugs and repair diseased organs. This is all possible, and I think it's all in the next 100 years or so. I mean, maybe 200 years is hard to say, but we're on the verge of some of these things now. Biological engineering, genetic engineering, so the, are, so, so the babies that are created are are, are, are in some way perfect? Yes. Uh, of course, that raises all kinds of ethical Indeed. questions. Indeed, it does, uh, yeah. We're, we're, we're at a very interesting time. But scientists are actually working currently on this kind of nanotechnology. Yes. I mean, the idea of a chip in your head that can connect you to the internet is both incredible and terrifying. Yes, it is. Well, we already have the technology, and this already exists, where you can put a, a, a chip in your head where you can move a limb, a robot limb, by thinking it, you want it moved. So we're, we're already part of the way there. You know, once we understand about the way brain works, um, the way that information is stored in the brain, there's no fundamental obstacle to that understanding. And I think that it's just a matter of time. And when we all have computer chips in our brain to communicate uh, directly with the internet, that means that we, we will be able to communicate with each other directly just by thinking. So it, it raises all kinds of questions like the, the, the word intellectual property now has a totally different meaning 
when your 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 thoughts are actually connected to the to the internet and through the internet to to other people so there'll be whole new fields of law that need to be created uh, whole new uh, studies of ethics and we might be able to live forever if we've got uh, if we've got molecules that are able to change uh, and repair. That was organs. that was going to be a hard one to beat, living forever, because there you're facing the second law of thermodynamics, which is that everything ultimately disintegrates and degrades. How does all of that? How does this this new frontier of science uh, meld with your views on a type of religion, this transcendental experience? Well, I don't see any incompatibility. It, it, it just increases my awe for human beings, what we're capable of, uh, even remaking ourselves, which is what all of this does. We're remaking ourselves. But the fact that, that we live on this one small planet and one small solar system and one average galaxy, and we've been able to figure out that the universe is 15 billion years old and figure out what distant stars are made out of, I mean, that just boggles my mind. It sort of makes me proud to be a human being. And it's not that I think that we know everything. There's still a lot that we don't know. And, and the more we know, we, the more we find out we don't know. But it's a real tribute to our intelligence that even as we we're remaking ourselves and becoming something that's not even homo sapiens anymore, we're, we're becoming homo techno, you know, where we're part machine and part human, still I'm awed at what we're capable of and will be capable of. Alan, I think my mind has been bent by what you said, uh, and certainly I've learned a lot. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Andrea. Thank you for having me on your programme. The Rathbones Look Forward series with Andrea Catherwood.